Do you want your team to learn how to prone safely and well? Are you going to be setting up a course? I know just the man. Let's go. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. I have a big apology. I'm really sorry I've not been around for a long time. I think you probably know why. Um, It's 2021. We've all suffered with 2020 and the coronavirus, but I'm not going to dwell on that. But that's my excuse for not being here for a while. I have had a few podcasts in the pipeline. There's a few ready to go. I just haven't got round to actually editing them and releasing them. So I do apologise. I'm going to put that right over the next few weeks and be more regular Um, because I enjoy interacting with my audience. I've met a few of you recently. I met a lovely uh, young nurse called Nadia on one of my units the other day who uh, was telling me how useful she was finding my video. So Nadia, thank you very much. I hope you continue to find those videos useful. And if there's anyone else out there who wants to get in touch with me, please do go to my website, criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. You can get in touch with me there. I've got lots of resources for you. I've got more resources to tell you about as well. I have just uh, added a page on capnography and also on ARDS and proning. So they're going to be released by the time this podcast is out. So if you want to go to criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, you'll find them on there. What else is new? Well, I am in the middle of building a course. This is a long-term project for me. So I'm building a course which people can uh, access via teachable.com. The uh, URL is a bit long at the moment. I'm hoping that's going to change. But if you want to go and look, there's a free... There's a free module you can access about BiPAP. So that's critical-care-practitioner.teachable.com. Uh, you can go there and look at the free example. That's where I'm building my course. Uh, it's probably not going to be released until next year. Uh, I'm working hard on making the videos at the moment. So I'm also running quite a few Facebook Lives. This was recorded on Facebook Live. And, and to get on to that, this is a conversation with myself and Yogesh, who set up a course for teaching his staff how to prone but I won't say too much more because you can go and have a listen it was done on Facebook live I do refer to some images but um, I don't think you need those images to understand the conversation so go and have a listen and I hope you find it useful and like I say we'll be speaking again soon And I'm very glad to be joined today by Yogesh. And Yogesh is a doctor working down at Kabucha Hospital, uh, which is a hospital just north of Brisbane. So he's in a hotter part of the world than most of us. We're all sitting here surrounded by snow. Hi, Heather. I can see you too. Thank you very much. Um, So... Um, Yogesh has very kindly joined me uh, and I did my normal thing. I put a little appeal out onto Twitter talking about anyone got any updates and proning. Yogesh put his hand up and blew his own trumpet, which is not a problem as far as I'm concerned, and uh, mentioned a paper that uh, he has recently published. So if I just uh, ask Yogesh just to introduce himself and then we can perhaps start talking about the paper. For any of those out there that are watching on uh, Facebook, you can post questions questions. So if you have a question, please post it, please ask. Um, As you can see, they're coming up on the stream. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to answer them. Um, Or if you just want to tell us how fabulous we are, then by all means, go ahead and do that as well. So Yugesh, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself first and foremost? Thank you, Jonathan. And hello, everyone. 
My name is Yogesh Apte. I'm one of the ICU specialists working here in uh, just north of Brisbane in Kabucho Hospital in Queensland, Australia. Uh, it's very much sunny and humid and hot and sweaty here. So uh, amidst all of this, I've got the aircon on, so I'm nice and cozy. So I, I hope to have you kept it entertained or rather informed uh, during this session. Um, I have been in Australia for about 17 odd years and done my fellowship in intensive care here. I'm a supervisor of training for the trainees for the College of Intensive Care, and I have a keen passion for education simulation and training and teaching. Excellent. You. Excellent. Okay, so let's have a look at the paper that uh, Yogesh kindly shared with me. So you can see the title there, Prone Positioning in Patients with Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, Translating Research and Implementing Practice Change from Bench to Bedside in the Era of Coronavirus 2019. Now, clearly, this is a hot topic for us at the moment. Um, we can perhaps not proudly say that we have the worst per capita death rate, I think, in the world now, which is something we're a little ashamed of. And all our hospitals have been absolutely walloped with coronavirus. I know, for example, mine at the minute, and I was talking to Yogesh about this yesterday. Uh, normally, ours is an 11-bedded ITU with an HP. 8-bedded HDU. Um, so we would have 19 patients in total, uh, half of which would probably be level 2 patients. At last count last week, I think we had uh, we got up to 37 mainly intubated patients um, on ITU. And I think I walked into the unit uh, one evening when I was on for a night shift um, and there were, uh, I would say, that probably 50% of the patients were proned. So I'd be interested in the comments, actually, if any of you uh, have had similar experiences as to how hard you've been hit uh, with the uh, coronavirus. Hopefully, we are over the peak now. Our government tells us we are. Um, it certainly felt like it over the last couple of days a little bit. I hope I'm not going to regret saying that, um, but that's certainly how it felt. So, Yogesh published this paper, which makes an interesting read. So, Yogesh, without me taking all the words out of your mouth. Can you tell me exactly what inspired you to go down this pathway? And I think my audience needs to bear in mind that this was written and performed pre-coronavirus. So there was a few uh, things that maybe we would change if we were to do um, some of the things that were implemented, like wearing PPE, but this was pre-coronavirus. So wh why did you start this process, Yogesh? What, what was the problem yeah. that alerted you to it? Yeah, uh, thanks for that, uh, John. Um, when I joined amongst uh, three or four other colleagues into what was a combined unit of Redcliffe and Kabuchar ICUs, this was spread across two campuses, and each each ICU having nine beds each. So we had a total of 17, 18 beds available for us, and a new cohort of uh, freshly minted specialists joining a group of previously working specialists in that unit. And we were just in the process of updating our work guidelines and reviewing all the literature and uh, practice change that we were performing in the unit. And it so happened that we had a patient with ARDS who had to be shifted for ECMO or consideration of ECMO. After this event, we sort of had a debrief with the unit and we decided that we need to really look at our strategies to mo manage moderate to severe ARDS within the unit. Uh, and that's when the whole proning uh, review of literature came about. And that started the process of, okay, now we, this is an established evidence-based procedure for moderate to severe ARDS, and it's gaining traction across the world, and we should certainly be offering it to our patients. And that's where the idea started.
And you certainly got ahead of the game there, didn't you? It's almost like you knew coronavirus was coming because uh, it's it's had huge implications since. Um, Just as a little aside here, because this is something I've been covering quite in depth. I'm doing a presentation next week on uh, proning and the physiology behind it. Um, Can you just tell me... For you, and I know you probably um, have also looked into this in great depth, for you, what are the main benefits of proning? Why do we prone patients? What what are we trying to achieve? Um, As people may or may not have known, that um, when you do conventional ventilation, you do have limitations in terms of oxygenation benefits. Um, So there is good evidence scientifically and proven with multiple studies as well as uh, literature reviews, including a big Cochrane one, that when you make the patient go from supine to prone, you change the VQ mismatch that actually happens. And with the weight on the lung of the chest as well as the abdominal um, contents, when it gets changed, the VQ mismatch reverses and therefore it allows the dependent part of the lungs to be better oxygenated with PEEP now being delivered those parts which are no longer dependent. Um, So that's definitely one benefit. Other studies have also shown that uh, they do reduce um, evidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia, as well as earlier resolution of hypoxia with optimum requirement of peak at the same time. Um, So to me, what I have seen in my limited experience, our numbers in my unit haven't been as, as significant as what you have experienced or what other people have experienced in the units in terms of ARDS numbers and those that they have been proned. But we have definitely seen an earlier resolution of hypoxia uh, when patients get proned and easier ability to ventilate these patients as well. Okay, so I think one of the most interesting things that um, I identified early on um, and, and one of the first things you talk about is the PDSA cycle, but I want to come come to that in a moment. Um, one of the things that you say was proning was not offered in our ICUs at the time. Why was it not being offered at the time? So, uh, like, we, like I said, we had a new cohort of four uh, specialists join the unit when the units expanded. Uh, originally, it was a small unit with uh, very limited presence of specialists and very limited staff that were managing the unit. So the the ratio of number of patients to number of staff was quite low. Um, When I say low, it was by Australian standards. Uh, And we did have a a issue of uh, staffing and we also had issue of training as a result of limited number of people to train and upskill the staff. So when a new cohort of specialists and uh, nurses joined the unit, uh, it had given us sufficient numbers to sit down, sit at the table, draft a plan, really look at how we actually educate and simulate certain situations. And that enabled us to sort of free up one consultant and one nursing educator at per week for two to three hours and then expand our education program. And Prony was part of the education simulation program rollout that we did. Uh, but certainly we thought Prony would be the best um, in order to publish a paper to demonstrate our ability to learn and produce change of practice. Okay, so just to go through this a little bit further, so um, is is the process, because you talk about the PDSA cycle, is this a process you've been through before with something else or was this relatively new to you as well? Yeah, it is interesting because once we decided that change practice was going to be our focus and we are going to implement a new, an entirely new uh, set of 
provision of care that we did not do, but which has got evidence based. Um, we actually researched the literature to look at what is the best way of implementing this. And that's when we really got exposed to this PDSA cycle. Thankfully, we had a, a senior executive who was a previous ICU uh, nurse who then introduced us to this from a management side of things. And we kind of picked up on the idea and then decided to implement that PDSA cycle. Uh, PDSA essentially is a, it's a four-stage cycle where you plan an event or change of practice, you do it, uh, then you look at, you study the actions as a result of doing the, the protocol itself, and then you do an assessment or audit of the process, and then come back and to review the entire process when you want to take it to stage two. Did you did you actually um, have any training for the PDSA cycle, or is this something that you felt you would be reasonably comfortable with, and it was something that would become um, intuitive as you went along? Yeah. So when we formed the proning working group, it consisted of uh, one IC specialist with an education background and focus, and a nurse educator, and two more IC specialists who had uh, some experience in, in in terms of education for the unit and simulation. So within the four of us, we sort of picked up on the cycle, decided what we need to do, went to the relative directors and got their approval and just, just went, kept rolling. Okay, right. So the PDSA, PDSA cycle, so plan, plan, do, study, act. So um, the planning part um, was um, about identifying the evidence uh, for prone positioning. And I think there is a lot of evidence out there now, isn't there, for the efficacy of the proning. Um, now, whether one... Um, will discover from the coronavirus pandemic that proning um, has been more or less beneficial, <clears throat> excuse me, is something that we do await. But certainly the evidence from the past, and I've been reading evidence today that goes all the way back to 1975, 1980. Um, and um, the Proceiver trial is also a trial that um, talked about the merits of proning. And I want to come back to the Proceiver trial later because it had one uh, weakness or maybe maybe more than one, but one weakness I particularly want to talk about. So the evidence is certainly out there um, and identifying the opportunity is something that you've already done. You talked about the proning uh, working committee. Who were involved with the proning working committee? Was that a, a mixture of various uh, practitioners? Yes, so we had um, two senior medical uh, officers or uh, consultants, IC consultants. We had one nurse educator who was dedicated to her role. And we had one physiotherapist and one dietitian. And then we also had a social worker, but not all the time. But essentially, it was medical nursing and allied health as a group uh, of at minimum four. And then social worker was involved just in terms of looking at the family side of things and, and communication side of things. Okay. So you then go on to talk about barriers and incentives to change. Now, for me, whenever change is something that we want to occur in my profession, and by my profession, I mean both nursing as an advanced practitioner and including a lot of the allied health professionals, um, Change is not something we're very comfortable with, is it? Change is something that we don't appreciate very well. What particular barriers do you think um, 
you came across that you had to overcome before you could actually start the whole process? Yeah, so at the outset, when um, it was identified that we have um, evidence base for a procedure that is has got good results in the appropriately chosen patient cohort, and that we are not offering that service to these patients, um, it was the the I wouldn't call it obstruction. The the the, the sort of the inhibitions or um, limitations were pointed out at, at the very outset itself, as in. Uh, does it have really have a strong evidence? Are we endeavoring into an unknown territory, potentially causing harm to the patients, to the staff? Uh, is this something that can be avoided altogether? Uh, we are 20 minutes away from an ECMO center. If it gets moderate to severe hypoxia and we can't manage it, we, why can't we just keep doing what we are doing? Um, so on and so forth. How are we going to organize staffing? How are we going to organize education and simulation? We don't have the adjuncts, you know, all, all sorts of um, potential uh, limitations, which, which, which we managed to overcome, uh, can I say, um, but were raised. And in, it took us a solid three or four meetings to just get the idea that we need, we need to have a crack at this. Uh, we need to, because uh, it is something that is easily uh, made possible. Uh, we don't need a lot of investment in terms of money and personnel. And we can make do with what we have in the unit and definitely provide another option for that period prior to shifting any patients for ECMO. So uh, on top of not only knowledge, limitations of knowledge, but also understanding of the need as well as the intricacies required, a little bit of inhibitions about ability to train and simulate uh, these kind of situations. Uh, and then finally, when it came to actual implementations, uh, there's a bit of a acceptance issue there as well, as in, uh, I don't know what happens if the tube falls out in the middle of the night, who's going to come in and intubate, that, those kind of uh, uh, mental limitations were there. But I'm, we were pleasantly surprised at the end that once we identified each and everything in, in our education sessions, followed by simulations, it actually became quite easy. Now the staff are ready to prone. Um, it is quite fascinating to watch the change. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly the same for us, um, having done as many as we have done recently, that the proning um, is not seen as a, such a big deal anymore. I remember when I first suggested proning in another hospital I worked at a couple of years ago, um, it was it was a real big deal and, and nurses and doctors were quite anxious about doing it. We did it. Um, but now, because it's something that we do not just, you know, once or twice a week, but we're doing several times a shift with various different patients, including head turns as well. It's something that um, everybody is much more used to. For me, one of the main problems comes from a lack of understanding, not as to how to do it, but as to why we're doing it. So if you can help people understand the physiology behind it and some of the potential benefits, um, albeit whether the research believes it or not, and some of the potential benefits, then I think there becomes a greater acceptance. So it, it's not, for me, the priority is not the how initially, it's the why. Um, why are we doing what we're doing? And why will it help the patient's oxygenation improve? Um, so that, that certainly was the approach I would use, definitely. Um, and it's interesting uh, from what you say that gradually your staff became much more comfortable with it. Um, okay, so the do I want to move to next. So actually, what we can do is 
I've got it here. So let's move down to the do. So the do, and this is an interesting one because um, some of the things that you said, uh, you, you developed a, um, a education package developed over an eight-week period, including uh, weekly one-hour sessions involving a lecture and interactive discussions on ARDS indications or contraindications for proning and troubleshooting of the patient in the prone position. So you've kind of covered all the bases there, haven't you? When you say you were delivering an education package, was this done formally or informally? Yeah, so the... Um this was a very formal laid out program and we decided at the outset that if you have to achieve change of practice, then we have to set the standards and and not only set the standards in terms of content, but also set the standards in terms of interaction and feedback and debriefing, etc. Um, and that was one way we thought we would win trust of the staff who, had, who were not really involved in proning before. There was about, there's about less than 10% of the nursing and medical staff who were actively involved in cloning prior to us uh, jumping headlong into this change of practice. And so winning trust was the key. And, uh, and so we kept it at a very formal level. Everyone had to sign in an attendance sheet. You had to come in. It was a designated, kind, almost like a, a protected teaching training time. And once for that eight-week period, this was in addition to the, all the act, other activities that we were doing in the unit in terms of uh, doctor training and medical nursing training, etc. Um, but once we, we sort of advertised it uh, quite uh, regularly, it was put on the walls, in the in the tea rooms, in the toilets, etc. It was kind of there that proning, uh, prone positioning protocol is starting. And uh, we are going to roll this lectures on every Tuesday for an hour and then simulations on every Thursday for two hours, that kind of stuff. And the buy-in was was uh, ensured that it, it's like in in your face, um, and the trust was gained by a bit of setting the standards, but keeping it formal as well as a lot of interactions and feedback. Okay, um, the next section that caught my eye was the use of simulation. Um, I think simulation has many great benefits if it's done well. Um, I think if it's not done so well, um, it can possibly do more harm than good. But this is a whole different discussion. It sounds to me from what I've read that you did it well. So your simulation sessions, can you tell me how they were set up? What kind of things you covered? What kind of staff were involved? And what was the um, hoped for outcome of those simulation sessions? Yeah, so um, the sim sessions had two primary outcomes that we were hoping. Um, the one outcome was ability of the staff to be able to prone and a supine patient and then bring the patient back to supine positioning. That was the one outcome that we were aiming for. And the second outcome we were aiming for is troubleshooting uh, three major complications whilst in prone position. Um, one was uh, a, a pressure a injury prevention Second one was accidental extubation, and third one was a cardiac arrest uh, in the prone position. Uh, and then we rotated our scenarios based on uh, these aspects of the, of the outcomes uh, that we were intending that they will learn. Uh, a bit of a pre-briefing, if you like, was given prior to a SIM session that was started. And the SIM was run by, we had two consultants who had some uh, experience in simulation and education, formal kind of simulation, myself included. I was I'd just done my master's of education back then and I'd done the Harvard SIM course. 
advanced debriefing as well. So I put myself at the forefront and the nurse educator who was with me had done a basic simulation course of debriefing as well. So we had two sort of formal uh, simulators and debriefers within the cohort and two more consultants and nurses who were very keen in imparting sim uh, as part of the sim coordinators. Um, so a group of four people actually wrote the sim scenarios, made sure that the mannequins and the, all the adjuncts were available on time, prepared, ready, set up. Uh, the mannequin had to be intubated uh, beforehand. All the monitoring was attached. A scenario was given to them. We ensured that all the staff viewed the video that is attached in the supplementary appendix on the paper, which is the famous... Um, there's two videos, actually. One is from the French paper, and then the other is a local video that one of our local hospitals um, published. And so we asked them to check either one or two. They were very similar in their outline. And they would have to watch the video. They would have to attend the education uh, lecture session to gain prior knowledge of indications, contraindications, etc., or proning, and then come into the sim scenario with a pre-brief about the scenario. So two scenarios. One is standard prone to supine and then, uh, sorry, supine to prone and then supine. And then second is complications. Uh, each scenario was ran, the actual clinical simulation was about 15 to 20 minutes, followed by 15 to 20 minutes of debriefing, uh, and then a 10 minute break, and then the second scenario. Um, the attendance was recorded, the debriefing was, notes were taken down, and we sort of ensured our learning as the facilitators, uh, as well from the debriefing. So it was done very formally, and we had a thorough logbook of uh, people attending sessions done, and learnings achieved. Okay, so um, it the, the simulation. I'm assuming um, you say you used a mannequin. Um, some of these mannequins can be particularly heavy, reflecting the patients. Presumably, the mannequin was um, um, set up with all the various lines and the catheter and the various drains that you might find, because that's an important part, isn't it? Definitely. Okay. Just to ask you, what is your proning process? Because interestingly, I was recording a video for the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine in Italy um, just before Christmas. And the Italians actually, um, they don't use slide sheets. We use slide sheets over here to make the proning process easier. They do use the, uh, we call it the Cornish, Cornish pasty method, but that's probably specific to our country. I, I think the Americans call it the burrito, don't they? Um, yeah. But anyway, we roll them up um, and um, the Italians would have one at the head and only they would use for your average standard patient only uh, two other practitioners, so one either side. Now, we use uh, a minimum of four, uh, two on either side, and if the patient is particularly heavy or might prove to be difficult, we'll often use six. Uh, if they're on CVVH, we might even use seven because we need to protect those lines as well. Um, what's your and, and then obviously use the pillows. Um, and again, the Italians didn't use any pillows. They had uh, mattresses that you could deflate the cells all the way down. So rather than use a pillow, they would turn the patient over and deflate the cells in the appropriate places, which I actually think is quite a good idea. Um, but I've never had the chance to use it because we don't have those kinds of mattresses in great yeah. supply. What's your method in Australia? Is it similar to ours or are you more Italian? No, very much similar to what you would do. Um, so use of uh, no slide sheets, um, use of pillows. And we started uh, with four team members for the proning, including one at the head end and then three at the side. But we quickly realized that uh, we were not appropriately uh, making use of 
the personnel, they were looking at multiple things at the same time and mm. they were quite distracted when we started. So having the fifth person ensured that lines were looked after well, the catheters were looked after well, and the infusions, etc., were ensured that they're not tangled or kinked uh, in order to prevent loss of delivery of the drugs. Um, so we quickly went, within the first two sims, we quickly went from four to five um, uh, team members for the proning. And that seemed to have helped us uh, sustain zero issues in terms of proning to supine, uh, supine to prone and vice versa. Um, we also realized that uh, when we started the, the SIM program that we did not have a CMAC at the head end. Uh, and in, funny enough, in one of the SIMs, the tube actually fell out. And as part of the, deep, uh, as part of the troubleshooting, uh, they were still struggling with the standard uh, MAC blade. Uh, and that was the, a learning point for us that we need to have a CMAC at the head end, uh, regardless of who's uh, managing the airway. And that was, a, that was a very good learning point for us earlier on in the simulation. And that, um, came, that came from the simulation? That came from very early in the sim, yes. Right, okay. Um, and then the pressure area injury, of course, was, uh, was a key aspect of, of care. And um, f after the first two patients who had very uh, superficial uh, uh, abrasions to their skin, we changed uh, the way we did pressure injury care and we actually ordered softer cushioned like pads for the cheeks and the chest uh, and that model, that enabled us to have only one after the of the rest six patients uh, who had only a, a grade one injury to the toe <clears throat> okay so we've got to we've done the study uh we've done we're, we're now moving on to the act so this is when you actually started to uh implement proning in your unit for real and you say the first patient you proned, I'm just trying to get to it, was uh, June 2018. Um, so this is, um, and you had, uh, that was three weeks after the finalization of, finalization of the PPP. Let me just scroll down to that particular section so anyone can read it who wants to. And Heather is very kindly uh, linked to it in the chat for me as well. So anyone who's listening and wants to actually access the paper, just you just need to click the link in the chat. Um, as I say, this is going to be a, a podcast next week as well. So um, if you're listening on the podcast, clearly you can't click on the link in the chat, but it will be in the show notes. So uh, just go to the show notes on my website, uh, criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, um, and I'll make sure that the link is there as well. Um, so that was an aside. So um, you had no major complications or adverse events. Uh, interestingly, three patients developed a grade one pressure injury to their face, chest and toes as a result of proning. Um, this is something that we're encountering quite a lot. Um, and what the one thing that we are getting uh, a lot of sores on is not necessarily to the face, but to the patient's lips. Uh, because as the patient's head is turned to one side or the other, it's really difficult to, well, it, it's actually an impossibility if you're not using the, the face things that some people are using and we're not, it's really difficult to actually stop the tube from pressing on the corner of the mouth if you if you need to keep it um, straight. Um, so pressure area injury is is um, a bit of an issue as well. Um, 
but you say that uh, one in three patients suffered pressure injury, and that's similar to uh, those reported by other researchers. Interestingly, seven patients were successfully weaned from mechanical ventilation. Uh, one patient, unfortunately, suffered from cardiac arrest secondary to refractory hypoxia and was given CPR whilst in the prone position. That's interesting because that's your simulation, basically, in action, yeah. isn't it? And yeah. maybe without that being simulated, that would have caused bigger problems. Um yeah, it so happened that it, I was actually the person taking handover, <laughs> and this was this was at handover. It's half past seven in the morning, and we were at the patient, and suddenly he flatlined, and everyone was like, "What just happened?" Start with the, start with CPR, and it actually the whole CPR process in the prone positioning went went really well in terms of how we performed our actions and team communication and managing the arrest. We actually managed to get him back, and we had to transfer him to ECMO. Uh, within the next three hours. Great. That's that's awesome. I mean, that just shows the whole process of simulation done properly um, can be of great benefit in the future. So um, you then went on to, to audit, didn't you? So um, I think that's very, very important. What what did audit find for you? What, what were the key parts for audit that you needed to think about and possibly change? So... The problems that we uh, identified were those three patients who had the, the pressure injury. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't major, and thankfully, it was picked up early and prevented. But we, as a result of that, we changed our pillows and pressure injury adjuncts that we had in the unit, and we went on to buy some gel packs that were placed on the cheeks, on the chin, and the chest, uh, and that seems to have worked. Uh, we haven't had any major since then. The audit also looked at appropriateness of sedation plus or minus paralysis while it's in the prone position um, and then definitely any sort uh, we also had a big debrief of the cardiac arrest whilst the patient was in the prone position about the CPR and the transfer of the patient um, so those were the three main main issues that were uh, highlighted in the audits we also then subsequently uh, we are lucky one of the very in fact one of the three units in Australia I think who have a post-ICU discharge clinic and we all of these patients that uh, were successfully weaned who were prone uh, were asked to follow up in the in the follow-up clinic and none of them reported any sort of PTSD from just from the proning episode in fact none of them remembered that they were made to lie on their on their chest on the belly um, so in a, in a sense that was a good outcome in, in that did um, sorry you guys to interrupt you yeah. did any of them report any shoulder problems at all None. None, okay. none whatsoever. Uh, but then again, we were very early and very fresh in the, in the whole implementation. And I suppose if you were overwhelmed with numbers, I'm sure some other things which we, which we were lucky not to experience would have come up. And presumably they were adopting the swimming position, were they? So there was the arm up yeah. and the arm down. Yeah. Um, because one of the, some of the papers that I've read recently um, have highlighted that some patients are reporting brachial nerve injuries and frozen shoulders. Um, and I think uh, one of the things I'm trying to reiterate at work is it's very important that the, the shoulder isn't um, um, abducted any further than... Um, 80 to 70 to 80 degrees because any yeah. further than that that's when you start to cause the impingement yes. um, in the shoulder joint there with Absolutely. the nerves um, so I think that's so we keep it, we, we sorry to interrupt again uh, no, no, no. we aim to keep, keep the shoulder at about 60 to 70 degrees like you just said yeah uh, and there was there is some evidence that any higher than 70 to 80 not only has short, frozen shoulder and nerve issues but also uh, inferior dislocation or posterior dislocation of the shoulder as well whilst they're paralyzed 
Yeah. Uh, so we, we never went above 60. Yeah. Okay. That's always the part of the process that scares me the most, if I'm honest. The head turn um, scares me less than actually moving the shoulder out. And I think it, it does the nurses as well. I can always see them grimace a little bit when we move that shoulder. Um, but I think as long as it's done carefully uh, and, um, you know, not... not um, not abducted too far, then hopefully that won't be an issue. So in light of all that, um, now I don't know whether Australia is anticipating um, a winter of coronavirus. Um, I suspect it probably not to the degree that we've had. Um, do you feel more prepared? Do the nursing staff feel more prepared? That's that's my focus, the nursing staff being an, of a nursing background. Do you think the nursing staff are more prepared if you do get a bit of a wave, which you may well experience? Do you think they feel more prepared? A, do they understand it better? And B, are they more prepared to prone those patients? I think so, definitely. Um, over, since we've implemented the program, we've had 25 patients with ARDS and nine were prone. So in that sense, not a lot of numbers in a year and a half period. Uh, but what we've done very wisely is every three months, as part of our training for nurses and doctors, we run a proning sim. Um, and that has kept the interest going. That has kept the people exposed to the ongoing uh, proning requirements. And then COVID hit us about eight months in, into uh, the program. Uh, and so that came up again. And we sort of intensified the whole focus on proning again as a result. So we have kept it very much in the forefront of our thought process. Uh, and as a result, I think a, a lot of staff are just very easy to say, okay, we're going to prone this patient and it just happens. Yeah. Uh, but, but coming winter, I hope we don't get slammed like we did last time. I mean, when I'm using these words, I have to bear in mind that Australia is a tiny drop in the bigger COVID yeah, ocean in yeah, terms of yeah. numbers. Uh, but, um, and with vaccination being rolled out, who knows? Uh, we, we may not get that massive hit. Yeah, I hope not. I hope not. I hope we're beginning to get on top of this. Um, I, I, I can quite proudly say that our government's got its act together and we're vaccinating more people than anybody else. So hopefully we'll start to reap the rewards of that. Let's just ignore the South Africa variant and the Brazilian variant and all the other variants for now. And just, you know, let's cross one bridge at a time and just hope that we improve. Thanks very much, Yugesh. That's really interesting. Um, I know there's another paper in the pipeline that I might want to talk to you about in the future as well. Um, um, I think sharing this kind of thing via this medium, it allows people to ask questions. Nobody did, but Heather very kindly shared your paper, which is awesome as well. Like I say, um, if you're on the podcast, the paper will be in the show notes. Um, this is being recorded in February of 2021. So if you're listening to the podcast in the future, hopefully everything is an awful lot better and we can all relax a little bit and get back to normal um, because we'd all like to go out. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner, or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs>